0: Isn't it good to know that we have a God who will not let us go, no matter what comes? That's an appropriate song as we get into the book of Numbers. As promised, we're going to begin this series in Numbers. and uh, it's It's a picture of God not letting go of His people, even though by every standard He surely ought to. It just seems like the right thing to let go to call it quits, to say, nope, that's enough, you've gone too far, you're done. But that's not what he does. And the beautiful thing about the book of Numbers is not the numbers. It's what happens in the midst of this story. So as we are beginning with this, today's going to be a little bit different. Uh, Rather than, um, than preaching a particular Uh, passage of the scripture here we're going to take a a quick trip through the book of numbers we're going to have a kind of a survey an overview to prepare us for what's coming as we study the rest of the book so let's begin uh, with a word of prayer father god we cannot thank you enough for your faithfulness We recognize You to be the strong and mighty God. We recognize You to be holy. Father, Your glory is beyond compare. And everything that exists derives its existence from You. You spoke everything into existence to be a reflection of Your glory. Help us to recognize just what that means in our lives. That we do not exist unto ourselves. We do not have the right to govern our own lives according to what we think is right. But we belong to you. Whether we recognize it and acknowledge it or not, we were created for you. As we enter into this time of looking at your word, and as we enter into this series in the book of Numbers, Lord, I hope that you would, I hope that you would help us to see that. I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit forth so that those who do not belong to you would be prompted to turn to you, that our eyes would be opened, that those of us who have already surrendered to the fullness of who you are. We've placed our hope in Christ for salvation, recognizing that he is Lord of all. Father, for us, I pray that you would help us to recognize how you deal with your people in our unfaithfulness, in our failings, the consequences of our choices. And yet even then, Lord, you never let go you remain faithful to your promises, to your covenant with your people at all times and forever. May your name be praised. Now, Lord, guide our time. Open our eyes, open our hearts that we might not merely receive information from this book, but that it might live to us. That we might live according to it. That in the hearing and the reading and the studying, that we might be transformed, renewed in our mind as your Spirit changes us. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we are um, beginning today, I want to just acknowledge that I have received more uh, texts and calls from people who are reading the book in advance than maybe any series that I've challenged you to do that in the past. I don't know why. Maybe it's because censuses are so exciting. And so, you know, you, you get to some of you. I got a message this morning. You know, I, I was listening to it on an audio Bible, and the first chapter was like so inspiring. That's not what the message was. It was like the first chapter was, ugh. And it can feel that way. I think a lot of times we have that perception in any Old Testament book. We just assume, it's oh my goodness, it's the Old Testament. We don't need that anymore. A a, a well-known preacher um, just a couple of years ago uh, was promoting the idea of unhitching from the Old Old Testament, uh, which is specifically the opposite of what the New Testament calls us to do. The New Testament leans on, stands on the Old Testament. It is worthless. Let me say that again. The New Testament is worthless apart from the Old Testament. God has given us one book, a unified story of his relationship to his people from the dawn of creation until the consummation of all things. God has not changed. Amen? God does not, will not, cannot change. So the God in Numbers is the same God in 2 Peter, or Hebrews, or Revelation, or the Gospels. Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God, and He was God, and He created all things. There is no separation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Different persons, one God. As we look at this interesting book, and when I say interesting, I mean weird, some of you have said, my father-in-law said, boy, I'm looking forward to this. I'm curious how you're going to do this, how you're going to handle it. I chuckled because I didn't know how to respond, and as I mentioned before, I was a little bit intimidated by it, kind of a coward, which is why I had somebody speak last week, to give me a little extra time. The response that I wish I had given him at the time is, I'm not going to do it. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. He wrote it. He's the one that put the words here for us. And it is only by the Holy Spirit of God that any of us can see what God is saying to us. Understand there is one right interpretation with many applications. What the author intended, God through the human writer, what they intended for their original audience is the only right interpretation. But there are lots of applications for our lives as we go through any particular book. So I want to remind you as we do this that we approach the Bible as literature the same way we would approach any other book. The plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things as our friend Alistair Begg likes to say. God does not give us this book to hide himself or to confuse us, but to reveal himself and to instruct us so that we might know him. So with that, let's jump right into your outline. Before we even begin to look at the text, the first question that that comes up, should rightly be, why study the book of Numbers? Why should we even be bothering with this? What in the world do I care about three chapters of censuses for ancient Israel with a bunch of names that I don't recognize, half of which I don't see in many other places in Scripture? Why in the world would you put me through this? First off, and I would suggest most importantly, Because it is God's revealed word. This is God's revealed word. There is a reason that God chose to include it. If he wanted us to not pay attention to it, he could have easily skipped it. He could have gone Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and and moved on. He could have skipped all of the Pentateuch, the first five books, and said, let's just go straight to the gospel. But he didn't. And for thousands of years, the the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jewish people leaned on only this Old Testament message before Christ ever set foot on the earth in His physical earthly ministry. God was teaching us then the same things that he's teaching us now. It is God's revealed word. Secondly, it helps us understand the nature of sin. As we look at the book of Numbers, and we'll go through the specific stories and see that this gives us a very clear picture of not only sins, those transgressions, those acts that are sins, but the sinfulness of the human heart. The nature of sin as a state. And we'll see that pattern come up. We'll see the, the tendencies in Israel that might remind us of ourselves. It helps us understand the nature of sin. Third, it helps us understand the connection between holiness and grace. There's a clear picture of God's demands. His law, His commands, His expectations. There are no suggestions here. God is giving a picture of a people set apart. And within that people set apart, He has a a group of people set apart. And within that group of people set apart, He has yet a more specific group of people set apart. And they are to do set apart things. There is a separation between the sacred and the common. And the book of Numbers shows us that. That's important for us to recognize, and we'll see that as we go along through the series. I won't spend a lot of time on that today. But along with understanding this holiness, that God is holy, therefore His people must be holy, we see a clear picture of God's grace. God has demands on his people in the same way that I, as a father, have demands on my children. That is good and right and expected. My children must understand the rules of our home and live by them. That that isn't what makes them my children, but because they are my children, it makes it right. Right? In the same way, God has demands of his children, and they don't become his children by keeping the law. But because they are his children, they must keep the law. It's a very important connection for us to see that doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. We have a clearer picture of it, the mystery revealed in Christ. The New Testament makes explicit what is implicit in the Old Testament. But there is a connection between holiness and grace. Next, notice this it helps us understand the relationship between our failures and God's faithfulness. It helps us understand the relationship between our failures and and god's faithfulness if you're anything like me that should peak your ears so that as you are working through this you want to know what is it that god is saying here about when i mess up why is that so important to me because i mess up all the time and it's really easy to feel like i'm such a failure I can't possibly belong to him. God must be so tired of my failing that he's ready to just turn me loose. But in this book, we see a picture not only of the failures of God's people, but of God's faithfulness to them through their failures. It helps us understand the relationship between our failures and God's faithfulness. Lastly, and there are certainly more reasons to study the book of Numbers, but lastly on our list here, it points us to the promise of salvation in Christ. It points us to the promise of salvation in Christ. As we go through this book and we see the various different stories, it should become clearer and clearer to us that Christ is present in the book of Numbers, both in type, things that foreshadow his coming, that talk uh, in, in, in uh, veiled terms about the Messiah who would come, and also explicitly in prophecy. We'll see Messiah prophesied, and while this whole book reaches back to Genesis 3, it reaches forward to the Gospels to see that Jesus is the Messiah who will come, who will offer salvation, And we'll see several connections that he makes himself between him as Messiah and what we see in this book. We'll get to that as we go along in the series. So in understanding why we should study the book of Numbers, we need to kind of get a picture as to some things that we need to to get a handle on if we're going to understand this book. For those of you who have... um, done your homework and you got a head start on the reading you probably once you got past the dizziness of of reading the the repetitions and reading the the censuses and the numbers some of you maybe are math people and are like "Ooh, numbers great uh and and i want to just let you know the point of the book of numbers is not the numbers that's part of the story but that's not the story You see, this book, which uh, has universally throughout uh, church history been attributed to Moses, that was uh, universally attributed to him uh, before the New Testament was written. It was uh, accepted normally. And only it wasn't until higher criticism in the last 200 years that we began to see people question that. But it's written by Moses, and the Hebrew title is not Numbers, that The book of Numbers, that title that we give it, comes from the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew title is actually In the Wilderness. So we decided to call it that for this particular series because the focus is not on the census. The census is part of the structure. We have two different censuses that take place, really two and a half, but uh, we'll talk about that as we get to them. These censuses give us sort of a structure for the book, but they're not the point of the book, right? So as we're doing this, we're going to need to understand some things. My, my daughter's homeschool study group recently uh, watched Return of the Jedi together because that's a super educational film. Uh, actually, it was connected to it. But anyway, as they were watching Return of the Jedi together, most of you will recognize that's the, the third installment here in the Star Wars series. It used to be a trilogy. I, don't, I can't even keep up with what's happened since then. But one of her friends was clearly not raised right and never saw Return of the Jedi. And for those of you who have not seen the Star Wars movies, we'll pray for your sanctification. But as, as they watched this, she was nonplussed, not impressed with this whatsoever for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is it did not make any sense to her. Why didn't it make any sense to her? Because she came in on the third installment in a series. So she missed everything that led up to that. So the the relationships that had been developed in the previous two movies didn't get developed here because they were already developed. She missed out on all of that. The background to the story that made, <clears throat> excuse me, that made this third film significant, that gave it power and weight, she did not have, because she had not seen what came before. In the same way, when we study Numbers, we are getting to, uh, we're getting to a fourth book of a single unit. So really, we're not talking about in the Pentateuch, which is the Greek for five books, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, in Hebrew, we would call it the Torah. As we look at these first five books of the Bible, it's not five different books, but really five volumes of the same book. You're looking at one story that that is playing out. And for us to be able to understand this, a couple of things we need to grasp. First, recognize that it is a continuation of the story of God begun in Genesis. It's a continuation of the story of God begun in Genesis. Now, it's easy for us to see that it's a continuation of what God is doing with the Israelites uh, from Exodus and Leviticus. And and if you're familiar with these at all, we see that they come out of Egypt, and here they are, now they're continuing this journey in the Promised Land. But it's not just that. All of that is the continuation of what happens in Genesis. As God establishes all of creation for His glory, creates a, a, a human race that is specifically bearing His image. It's the only part of creation that is, is said to be created in His image. Even though all of it, in a sense, is, and that it all is derivative of God, it derives from Him and reflects His glory which is why we can see uh, truths about God in the natural world. If you just observe nature, you see a sunset, you see the beauty of what God is doing. If you're uh, of a more scientific bent and you uh, look at cell design or you, you study the universe, it's hard to escape the incredible complexity that God has built into the universe. So all of it, in a sense, bears his image, But humankind uniquely bears the image of God. Humankind was created for an intimate relationship with Him. And then things fall apart in Genesis chapter 3. And we see this pattern emerge now of God's blessing. And then His people are looking for something else and they sin. And they can't save themselves. And so God has to create Salvation for them. It's not plan B, it's been his plan A. But as he is revealing himself to his people, he does it through a grand plan of redemption. And we see that here. It's a continuation of the story of God begun in Genesis. Notice this Israel was delivered from Egypt in Exodus, they received the law in Leviticus. And they're now preparing to enter the promised land here in the book of Numbers. So as they go through this, Genesis gets everything started. And in the middle of Genesis, God calls out from among the nations a people for himself. As he calls Abram. He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And all nations will be blessed through you. And those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And then it continues as Joseph uh uh, rises in egypt and and the uh the people of israel go and and become prosperous there so much so that pharaoh becomes jealous and fearful and just enslaves them and kills off the firstborn and and then god delivers them he sends moses into into egypt in exodus to deliver his people out and uses the plagues you know the story Somehow Charlton Heston gets worked in there and God delivers Ten Commandments to get them started. And he establishes the Passover and a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And from the end of the book of Exodus through the entire book of Leviticus where God gives them the law and establishes how worship will be done among his people, all of that takes place in the course of about a month. And here at the beginning of Numbers, we're still in that same place where Exodus ends. And we see them at at Mount Sinai throughout the book of Leviticus getting this law from God. Here we are again, same place, just a continuation of the story. We got the law. Now let's come back to the narrative, the story of what's taking place. It's a continuation of the story of God begun in Genesis. Israel was delivered from Egypt in Exodus. They received the law in Leviticus. Now they're preparing to enter the promised land. And this kind of creates a little bit of a a situation when we're looking at the genre. If we're going to understand the book, we need to understand it according to its genre. In other words, what type of literature is it? Well, like a lot of different books of the Bible, there's sort of a blending of genres in it. Overall, it's set in, as a historical narrative. We're seeing a story of what takes place in history. But within that, we have records, lots of census numbers here, so the, the records are in here as part of the story. We have another giving of the law. We have a kind of an interesting thing that happens. The more they violate the law, the more they sin against God, the more rules have to be put in place, right? Kind of like at home, You don't have to have a rule against stealing cookies until the kids start stealing cookies, right? So then, you know, you you start swiping the cookies, now we're going to have a rule. Okay, no more cookies, right? I don't have to make a rule about what you get to watch or not watch on television until you start watching things you shouldn't be watching. So, okay, that channel gets blocked, we're not going to be doing that. Okay, same kind of thing happens in numbers. As God's people do their thing instead of God's thing, God institutes for them more law to help point out to them their sinfulness. So within this genre, we need to make sure that in each passage, we're understanding that that particular section may not be historical narrative, but on the whole, the book is a historical narrative. So we read it according to that. Next, we need to see this. If we're going to understand the book, we need to understand that the Lord organizes His people in numbers with Himself at the center of everything. The Lord organizes His people with Himself at the center of everything. We'll talk a little bit about the first few chapters, uh, first three or four chapters next week, when we look at how God does this organizing and how He sets up uh, the census. But he organizes his people with himself at the center of everything. The tabernacle represents God's presence among them, as does the cloud and the fire when they move. So, as he gathers them together, as we'll see in a few moments, he gathers them together by tribes with the tabernacle at the center. And not only does he tell them how to gather, he tells them where to gather with all of them facing in toward the tabernacle. And the tribes divided into the four directions from each side of the tabernacle. And he puts in a buffer zone there with the Levites surrounding the tabernacle at the center. So there's a distance from the manifest presence of God represented by the tabernacle with the set-apart Levites. We'll get to them later on. And then outside of that, the, the masses of Israel, which is still God's set-apart people. So they are organized around the tabernacle. Now they're, they're gathered in these censuses, by, they're, they're gathered by their tribes, they're counted, interestingly, and we'll see this as a repeated theme in the first several chapters, by those who are of military age, by men who are able to serve in battle. Why is that significant? Well, it it seems to suggest that he's preparing them for war. So as we get into this, we'll recognize that he's organizing his people for war. He's also organizing them for worship. So These two things that he's putting together are part of his plan for Israel as they go into the promised land. Up until this time, he's taken them around battles. He took them on a particular path coming out of Egypt to avoid conflicts, to avoid wars, because a a huge group of slaves probably not going to be that great in battles. And God, in his provision and protection for them, brings them to Mount Sinai, avoiding conflicts. Now, as they go in to the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to them, they're going to have a conquest, which God had said long before was going to be the case. Now, they're prepared. He's organized them. And He counts them according to those who are of military age to be able to serve in battle. And then he gathers them for worship, according to the, uh, the tribe of Levi, who will be set apart to handle the holy things. The Lord organizes his people with himself at the center of everything. He does this physically, and they're able to see it. Everything that they do, they recognize our entire tribe, all of our clans, our families, we are facing God's holy place. We are facing the tabernacle in the midst of us as a people, is God in His holy place. But it's more than just the physical center of everything. God places Himself at the center of all their doings, all their being, all their thinking and living The laws reflect the fact that they belong to God. They are governed not by democracy or men's thoughts. They are governed directly by God. His justice, His expectations, His holiness reflected in the people in every aspect of every day at all times. So the festivals and the the various sacrifices, all of these things done at the center of the camp Because he is to be at the center of their hearts and lives. The Lord organizes his people with himself at the center of everything. Next, we should be noticing and keenly aware as we're going through this. We're going to understand the book of Numbers. We need to see that there is a clear pattern of sin, suffering, and salvation. Throughout this book, we'll see a clear and repeated pattern of sin, suffering, and And salvation. As we go through it, and and we'll see this really from Jump Street, man, as soon as they get done with the census and they begin to to step out, everything's organized, they're about to leave, and the first thing we read is the people were complaining about their hardship. Over and over and over, they're grumbling and complaining. And they face the consequences of their uh, rejection of God ultimately. And as they face those consequences, God gives them a way out. And then when they take advantage of that way out and God brings them out of it, what do they do? First thing, right out of the gate again, they start grumbling and complaining. They don't demonstrate faith in God. Israel continually rejects God by rejecting His promises of protection, provision, property, and prosperity. And by disregarding His commands for holiness, righteousness, love and faith in Him. They reject Him with ungrateful hearts amid His many blessings. And yet, God continually demonstrates His holiness by holding them accountable for their sin, but also shows His faithfulness to His covenant by not totally abandoning them or destroying the entire nation. And his, and he He continues to demonstrate His grace by blessing them with victories. And eventually, He'll bring them to the promised land. So in a nutshell, in Numbers, he he has them at the door of the promised land. They're ready to go. They they travel, they get there, they send spies in, as God tells them to do. And you know the story, ten were bad and two were good, right? The the ten come back with a bad report, and only two of them give the same report. Man, they all say, boy, the land is awesome. But ten of them are like, nope, we can't do it there's giants in the land, we can't do this, we should just turn back, we're better off back in Egypt. That's a theme that keeps coming up. By the way, you should find Keith Green's song, So You Want to get back to, Go Back to Egypt, which we're not going to do in church because we're not Keith Green. But you should look that up, you should check it out, you should have it on repeat throughout this series. It's a great song. Anyhow, they have this attitude of constantly wanting to go back to what they had. Let's go back to the world. Well, God's got them right here. Oh, but it's hard. Yeah, but I'm God. Oh, oh, but I don't know. It's, it's too tough. So anyway, they get to the, the edge of it. The spies come back with the report that says it's an awesome land, but it's too much trouble. We don't want to do it. We want to go back. God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. You're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until the entire generation dies, except for the two that had the good report. And they'll go into the promised land. And then we find the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua taking us there. But in Numbers, we see this pattern. Sin, suffering, salvation. The salvation that comes up here is always, mark it down, watch it as we go through it, it is always by placing their faith in God's prescribed sacrifice. The provision that he makes, whether that's the, the sacrifice of the animals uh, in, on the Day of Atonement, whether it is um, a, a particular sin offering for a specific thing, whether it is looking upon a representation of sin in faith so that God cures them from snake bite, that'll happen. All of these things, the salvation comes when the people trust in God's provided salvation. The pattern is a pretty clear picture of how the gospel works. God's salvation comes by faith in the sacrifice and salvation He provides. So let's take a quick spin through the book. We're not going to do a lot of reading of it. Um, I will just read at the beginning of chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses... In the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, "Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to the divisions of all the men, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army." We'll see that that phrase repeated. One man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family, is to help you. And then he gives the names of those who are assigned to help. So then we see in chapter 2 this arrangement of them into the tribes. Beginning uh, uh, chapter 2, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it. The tabernacle will be at the center. The tent of meeting is there at the center. But don't come too close, because God is holy, and we are not. Each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family, so they're marked out with their family crest, if you will. Chapter 3, we see that the Levites are handled separately as a separated people. And then there are some specifics in chapter 4 about how that works. Chapter 5, we begin to move into Uh, laws regarding the the purity and holiness of God's people. Some kind of weird stuff we'll talk about in there. We'll look at the Nazarite vow in uh, chapter 6. You may remember some specific Nazarites in the scripture, namely Samuel, who was made a Nazarite for his lifetime uh, after um, his mother specifically prays. For his miraculous conception, you may remember Samson, who is a picture of violating all of these uh, aspects of the Nazarite vow. He's set apart from ver- from birth to be a Nazarite, and everything that's listed here he violates. And then John the Baptist, who is another lifetime Nazarite, set apart by God for this vow. Most of the time, this Nazarite vow is limited, but in these cases, it's not. It's a lifetime. And he's set apart as the forerunner of Christ. They bring offerings as they dedicate the tabernacle. And then after they do that, they begin to set out. So when we get to uh, chapter 11, they're just beginning to take off here. And notice what happens in 11 verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships now wait a minute they're complaining about their hardships (laughs) back up to chapter 10 verse uh, 33 after all the stuff that they've done so they set out from the mountain of the lord and traveled for how long Let me, let me think about this for a second they set out and they've been traveling for three days I, my editorial comments here would be for three stinking days The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. After three stinking days. When he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. We see the stories here again demonstrating this pattern of sin and suffering and salvation. They bellyache about the manna and want some meat. God gives them exactly what they want. They're not happy with that. Miriam and Aaron, the sister and brother of Moses, complain that he's getting too much credit. He's got too much power. Their jealousy over him leads to God's judgment. And then again, his salvation. They begin to explore in chapter 13 with the spies, as we mentioned. And everybody comes back and says, wow, it's great there. We can't go. Except for Joshua and Caleb who say, it's great there. And there are giants. But we have a God. You know, it reminds me, some of you may remember the Avengers movie, the first Avengers movie, the one of the actual Avengers, when there's a confrontation between Tony Stark, Iron Man, and Loki, the, the, the god of deception from uh, and Thor's brother. And they're having a, a debate, and Loki says, I have an army, and Tony Stark says, we have a Hulk. It's a little bit like that, where, where Joshua and Caleb are like, who cares about the number of people they have? Who cares about the giants? Who cares about if they have a nuclear warhead? We have God. When God says it, you can bank on it. And the people are like, now nah, I'm heading back. And God gives them what they ask for. As they press on, we see more laws uh, given to demonstrate opportunities for salvation and to demonstrate purity. We see God establish the, uh, the authority of Aaron and Moses after a rebellion. We see the, the duties delineated once again for priests and Levites. And then in chapter 20, we run into uh, a very frustrating story which is going to cost Moses his opportunity to lead the people into the promised land. And it's frustrating for me reading it. Maybe it'll be frustrating for you. I kind of hope so, because it's a little more fun when we have some tension. But you look at it and you're like, man, Moses has been so spot on. And now he does this. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but God tells him he's going to die instead of going to the promised land. Funny thing, that's the same thing sinful Israel says when God judges the sons of Korah. We should remember that when we get to that passage. It continues. We start to see their their uh, uh, their uh, movement toward Canaan. They get to the plains of Moab, and we have a a, a pretty interesting story in chapters twenty-two to oh, really through twenty-five as a a false prophet, a sorcerer, you may recognize his name. Balaam, he uh, has a, a moment with the talking donkey. He really doesn't. He has a moment with God about to strike him dead with an angel that's bringing judgment. And God, in his sovereignty, makes the donkey particularly perceptive to it, and the donkey tries to save Balaam's life by avoiding this angel. And God miraculously causes Balaam to hear the donkey speaking to him And God forces, yes, forces this Gentile unbeliever to prophesy blessing. It's a great story when we get there. Chapter 26, we see another census. We'll talk about the significance of it when we get there. But just in a nutshell, it's a new census because the people from the old census died in the wilderness. Now we're a generation later and their children are about to inherit the land. We see a picture throughout this that as they're going in, they have this census and then they receive more laws. Really, it's a reminder of laws that are already there and some specific prioritizing in their minds of hearts of how do we work this out? If this part is important and this part is important and they seem to be in conflict with one another, how do we make those judgments? How do we make those discernments? And God lays that out for them. Finally, when we get to chapter 35 and 36, God brings them in and lays out the cities for them and gives a plan for them. And He wraps up with 36 verse 13. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. They're there. They're ready to go in. Moses isn't going to get to go in. Before he goes, he's going to give them the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, as a reminder. Like you might do as your child is getting ready to graduate or moving out. Let me remind you of all the things that we stand for. Let me remind you of the wisdom that you have already received, and I'll give it to you again. Because it's important. This book of Numbers, this in the wilderness, is a continuation of what God has done from the beginning. As we see the creation in Genesis and the fall of humanity, this collapse under sin, and the rest of this story is God redeeming His people. How is He winning us back? How is He saving His people? How does He deal with This wretched, sinful humanity. How does he maintain his holiness and justice and at the same time his love, his compassion, his grace? And we see that our choices have real consequences. That's pretty crucial for us to recognize. In fact, that's our core reality for today. Our unfaithful choices have consequences but God remains faithful to His promises. If you don't get anything else out of the book of Numbers, and I pray that you'll get a lot more, but if you don't get anything else out of it, you need to see this. Our unfaithful choices do indeed have real and meaningful consequences. But that does not mean that God has changed. He doesn't let go. He is faithful to his covenant. Peter says that much later And what is our memory verse for today. I'm sorry, Paul says it to, to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.13, as Paul, describing the sovereign grace of God to us, says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. When he has called us to himself and united us to Christ, we are his children. And as his children, when we fail, and man, do we fail. I fail, you fail, we fail. It happens to every person. And we don't get free of that. But when we fail, God is still faithful. Amen? His children don't stop being His children when they blow it. But choices do have consequences. The book of Numbers helps us to see that. So what does numbers contribute to God's overarching story? We've established or or, or referred to the fact that, that the entire Bible is the story of God's interaction with His people from beginning to end, from creation to consummation. So if that's the case, if all of the Bible is telling one story, what does the book of Numbers contribute to that? First, we see God's holiness upheld. We see God's holiness upheld. He has standards which reflect His character. And those standards are upheld at all times. One of my favorite verses, well, I don't know if it's my favorite. (laughs) It's one of those that hurts. But my mother drilled it into my head over and over again as a kid. Be sure your sins will find you out. We'll see that later on as Moses says, it's a little different application than what we might normally hear it. But that is a theme, that it's a thread that runs through this. You don't sin without God knowing it. Nobody else might know it, but God always knows. And as our friend Votie Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Your sins are never secret. You've heard, perhaps, that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. You can't fool God any of the time. He always knows. We see God's holiness upheld. And yet in the midst of this, we see God's compassion demonstrated. We see God's compassion demonstrated. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to add in there uh, what I probably should have put in there. We see God's justice and compassion demonstrated. We see God's justice and compassion demonstrated. He upholds his holiness. He establishes righteousness and justice. And the guilty do not go unpunished. But there is a compassion that God never lets go of. And he makes a way. We'll see that really clearly in the cities of refuge and uh, in the daughters of Zelophehad. And we see this picture that God is watching out for those who have nobody else to watch out for them. And he stays faithful to his promises even when his children don't deserve it at all. We see God's justice and compassion demonstrated. Third, we see God's glory displayed. We see God's glory displayed. That's the the picture of the tabernacle and the cloud and the fire. And all of the laws that establish God's holiness are to shine a light on His glory. When we see the people sin and God hold them accountable, it upholds His holiness and displays His glory. When we see God be faithful to His covenant promises... It displays His glory. In fact, that's how Moses approaches God when he intercedes on behalf of the people. That it's for God's glory. If you destroy this people, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. And they're going to say God wasn't strong enough to handle this. For your glory, Lord, show mercy. A thread that runs throughout the Scriptures. Lastly, we see God's covenant faithfulness. We see God's covenant faithfulness. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise that He keeps. And even when the entire generation that sinned against Him falls in the wilderness, God continues to preserve a remnant. And He keeps His promises. We see God's covenant faithfulness. Again, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. For the sake of time, I'll we'll cut to the chase here. How can I expect to apply this book to my life today? How can I take a book filled with censuses and, and Old Testament ancient Hebrew laws And weird rituals. How can I make that something that's meaningful for me today? I want to suggest to you that God fully intends for us to apply it. For us to take a look at the truth of what He has in this book, written for this generation that would inherit the promised land. Thousands of years ago, And God, in His sovereignty, knew that you and I would be talking about it right now. And studying this book, in this series, in this place, at this time. So that He might communicate to us by His Holy Spirit, through His Word, so that His heart might be reflected in us First, ask yourself the question as we go through this, not just today, but throughout this series. In what ways do I demonstrate a lack of faith in God's protection? In what ways do I show a lack of faith in God's protection? The Israelites fail to believe that God is big enough to deliver them from giants when God created everything, brought them to this place, promised it to them, and specifically told them to go spy it out so they could see what they were getting. In what ways do I do that? Where my, I allow my fears to be bigger than my faith. Everybody's going to have fears. Now, i got to tell you, if you think that Joshua and Caleb didn't see the, the giants in the land and say, whoa, buddy, some big boys right there, Right? It's like thinking Adam and Eve didn't know that they were naked. Of course they knew they were naked. It just didn't matter. Right? It, it doesn't say that they were unaware. It says they were unashamed. Joshua and Caleb had a little bit of the, uh, the John Wayne approach. Like, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Right? I'm going to do it because God said so. That, that's pretty much a simple deal, right? Is it scary? Of course it's scary. And all of you have been on a roller coaster, you went on a roller coaster knowing it was scary, and that's what you liked about it. And you paid ridiculous amounts of money to people that don't care about you so that you could go be scared. I don't understand it, it's crazy. You know. I've done it. They get there, Joshua and Caleb see the same thing. But their faith was bigger than their fear. You and I are going to battle that every single day. Fears are going to come. Anxiety is going to be present. It's an epidemic in our society. People are overwhelmed by fear all the time. We need to recognize ourselves in this book. In what ways do I show a lack of faith in God's protection? I need to also ask myself, in what ways do I show a lack of gratitude for God's provision? In what ways do I show a lack of gratitude for God's provision? God keeps providing for them every step of the way, and over and over and over, grumble, 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 grumble. They complain, oh, if only we had died in Egypt, we'd be so much better off. Why can't we go back there? You know, where we were slaves and brutally abused, and they killed our firstborn children. But but why can't we go back there? Because at least we had leeks and onions to eat instead of this manna (laughs) at one point they say there's nothing for us to eat and we hate what you gave us to eat well that means there's something never mind in what ways do i show a lack of gratitude for god's provision god is providing for us he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust he gives us in his common grace things that none of us deserve our sin means that we should all be in hell from the beginning And yet God gives us joy even to unbelievers in a harsh and sinful world. He provides for our needs. He gives us opportunities to be alive, to have relationships, to know Him. He continues to give us grace and be patient with us until the full number of those who will believe come to Him. Oh, but it's so hard. Life's so difficult. Why me, God? Why do I have to go through this? Talked with a dear friend recently who's dealing with brain cancer and sees the end. We're we're wrestling with some of those things. Was feeling kind of sorry for himself until he found an eight-year-old who was going through the same thing. And he said, "What what am I stressing about? I've had a good life up to this point. This is a kid. Perspective can help us get gratitude. Life is hard, right? It is. Our ungratefulness makes it a whole lot harder. Gratitude leads to joy and leads to blessing. Helps us to enjoy what God has already provided rather than coveting what we don't have that he may or may not intend to provide. We complain about the Christmas presents we don't have yet because it's not Christmas yet. Grumble, grumble, grumble. In what ways do I show a lack of gratitude for God's provision? Lastly, as we go through this series, ask yourself the question, how do I need to change my understanding of God's faithfulness? how do I need to change my understanding of God's faithfulness? For a lot of us, our framework puts us in a place where where every time we blow it, we think God's going to abandon us. Or for some of us, we think God's faithfulness, His grace means everybody gets a pass. I can do whatever I want. Oh, I've been saved. Once saved, always saved, right? So I've been saved. I can live however I want. Sure you can but you face the consequences of it. My choices determine my destiny in a very real way. I need to be asking myself, in what way have I misunderstood God's faithfulness? And as I see Him demonstrate it in numbers, how do I need to change my understanding? Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful to His promises. Let's pray. Father God, as we, as we work through the book of Numbers in this series, Lord, I pray that we will see Jesus, that we will understand You better That we will understand ourselves better. And because of that understanding, that we will put our full attention on the one that you have given for us. Knowing that you demonstrated your love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, not even seeking you, not even realizing that we needed a Savior, Christ died for us. In the midst of our rebellion, and rejection. You have been faithful. You have never let go. You are able to keep us, to preserve us. Lord, show us Yourself as we encounter You in the Word. And now as we prepare participate in this ancient ordinance that our lord gave to us father i pray that you would prepare our hearts that you would give us a spiritual understanding deeper than our minds could possibly grasp help us to recognize that jesus is the salvation that you have offered and your justice Demands death for sin. And so you provided the way yourself. That you might be fully just and yet be the one who justifies those who sin against you. Help us to remember that and to celebrate.